When it comes to genetics, sometimes it seems like data is king, especially when you're talking to someone like Mark. I'm Mark Effingham. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for UK Biobank. The UK Biobank, if you haven't heard of it, is this enormous scientific project that's sort of part research study, part charity, part big Excel spreadsheet. Around a decade ago, they managed to get half a million volunteers between the ages of 40 and 69 to come in, give a bit of blood and urine, and answer just a load of questions about themselves. The idea is that any scientist can cross-reference and study that data however they want. And now the biobank is adding a pretty significant column to that spreadsheet, whole genome sequencing. I guess this is starting to understand the human genome. That genome effectively contains three billion letters. What we're trying to do is look at that kind of genetic code across half a million people. Hang on a moment. Three billion letters, half a million people. I'm going to need a calculator. Okay. Uh, that's a one and a five and then 14 zeros. One and a half quadrillion little bits of DNA. I'm no expert, but I think that's quite a lot. After talking to Mark, I had a few questions. So I went to find some answers. It really is exciting. I think there will be moments of frustration. It always is. You can have a complete world map. It just takes so long, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Today on the show, we're talking in the quadrillions. I'm Phil Sansom, and this is Naked Genetics. Each little bit of DNA that leaves the UK Biobank over the next two years will head to either Iceland, the company Decode, or to the Wellcome Sanger Institute here in Cambridge. But both places will sequence the genes of their samples in the same way, and that's using tech from our old pals over at Illumina. If you listened to the last couple episodes, you heard how their machines can do a whole genome sequence in 40 hours. But we didn't really cover a crucial part, the chemistry, how the machine can look at only one DNA letter at a time. I went over to visit Vince Smith, who leads their chemical team. We sequence the DNA inside something called a flow cell, which I have in my hand here. Just a couple of pieces of glass glued together with a layer in between them, and there's a chamber between those two pieces of glass. It's probably like a lot more complicated than it looks, right? Yeah, yeah, it's superficially, it looks like, you know, a relatively small piece of glass. It's got a kind of slightly rainbow color, there's light refracting through it. Yeah, that, it does. And that's because of these very tiny patches that we load the DNA molecules into. Billions of very tiny cylindrical wells. They're just a few hundred nanometers across. Where does the DNA go on that? Inside a, a DNA sample, there'll be billions of fragments of DNA that have come from a patient or from someone in the biobank project. What we've done is attached short pieces of, of chemically synthesized DNA to each end of those DNA fragments. And it's always the same two sequences? It's always the same two sequences. We call them adapter DNAs. They will then bind very specifically to a complementary piece of DNA on the surface of the flow cell. And that's the mechanism by which we attach DNA to the surface so that it's ready to sequence. You remember that DNA-based pairs bind to each other, and we're making use of that property to attach the DNA very specifically to the flow cell surface. And then what? Then uh, what we need to do is that we need to make copies of that one piece of DNA. 
in each well, we end up with about 1,000 pieces of DNA in each well. And having 1,000 pieces of DNA in that well means that you get a lot more signal. How do you get them to multiply? So we use a special trick. Uh, it's a process called bridge amplification. The first piece of DNA does something called bridging. It bridges over, bending over to form this bridge on the surface and binds to another complementary strand of DNA on the surface of the flow cell. We then make another copy. That process repeats and these uh, molecules of DNA continue to kind of walk around the surface with this bridging process. At each step when they do that, we make a copy of them. And very, very quickly you end up with, uh, you know, it's an exponential process with a thousand or so copies of that one DNA molecule, all with the same sequence. So to clarify, what's going on is that at high temperatures in the machine, DNA, normally a paired double strand, separates into two single strands. When each strand then bends over to form a bridge on the flow cell, they apply an enzyme that uses the bridge shape to create that strand's complementary pair, and the pair then stands back up, and because it's still hot, they separate again. Both single strands bend over, and you keep going. The enzymes that they use are really cool because they need to work in high temperatures. So Illumina often gets them from little bacteria that live in the deep ocean around thermal vents. Using them, this process makes thousands of DNA copies in each of the billions of wells on the flow cell. So the next step is that we have these little chemical building blocks of DNA that we've modified in the lab. And what we've done to them is two things. First of all, we've added a fluorescent dye to them. The other thing we've done is added something called a terminator, or actually a reversible terminator. That's yeah. not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he can do a three-point turn. <laughs> yeah, nothing to do with Arnie. It's a chemical modification to the natural building block of DNA that stops you adding more than one base at a time to a growing DNA strand. If we didn't have it there, what would happen is the enzyme would just make a, whole, a copy of the strand in its entirety in a single step you wouldn't be able to see the DNA letter by letter. What's the enzyme? So the enzyme is something called a DNA polymerase. In nature, you add a DNA polymerase to copy DNA, and it will very rapidly just zip along the DNA strand and make a copy. In our system, we add one building block of DNA at a time. We then image the whole flow cell to see which color of base is lighting up. Then what we can do using another chemical process is remove the dye, the fluorescent dye, and also remove this terminator. And the process repeats. Rinse, repeat. Exactly. What I hadn't realized before is that the camera isn't struggling to keep up and look at every base at once. It's actually that they make sure to add the bases one at a time. That's some tricky chemistry. And lest we forget, this is sort of happening one and a half quadrillion times. When I spoke to Mark from the Biobank, he told me how tricky it is just to deal with all that information. Historically, UK Biobank has made available its data for download by approved researchers. But these data sets are now going to be so large that you simply can't do that. Around about 20 gigabytes per genome sequence. That's probably the equivalent of four high-definition movies that you might download from iTunes or similar. So if you then times that by 500,000, that is a, a substantial amount of data. With the sheer scale of the project comes extra jobs, computational jobs that you might not expect. Jobs like what Claire Bycroft used to do. 
She's a scientist who once worked on the genotype data from the UK Biobank. See, before they started this whole genome sequencing, they analyzed the DNA on a more limited scale. Although more limited doesn't necessarily mean small. I was part of a team that was to take the raw genotyping data that came out of laboratory machines, and our job was to turn this wealth of data into a carefully curated resource. We were a bit like curators in a, in a museum or an art gallery, but for data. What do you mean by that? Because isn't the data just the data, and then you just have to put it on a, a computer or something? Yes, perhaps naively you might think that, but it turns out that in a, such a large experiment like this, it's inevitable that occasionally some errors will occur in the processing, perhaps how the samples were handled, or something that happened in the computers. And our job was to find these errors and either remove them from the data or communicate these errors to the people who were going to be using it. And if we count how many of those points we actually ended up removing, it's about less than 1%. What exactly does a mistake look like? All sorts of things. So sometimes the machine or the algorithm fails to actually get enough information to make a call to be able to decide whether it's a G or a C or a T or an A. But in other cases, the letter is actually probably the wrong one. How do you tell when a letter is the wrong one, though? Because surely it just could just be that letter. Yeah, so usually what we do is we think about what kind of biology that we're trying to capture here and other things that we know about how the genome is inherited. And if we happen to see uh, in the data set that half of the people carry two Gs and half of the people carry two As and very few carry an A and a G, then that's an indication that probably some of those are incorrect. How many little bits of data were, were you looking at again? There is around 800,000 positions in the genome um, that were looked at for all of the individuals in the UK Biobank. So that's 800,000 by 500,000. My maths isn't that good, but it, that must be in the billions, right? Something like that. So you can't exactly go in by hand, so you had algorithms to go through and... Absolutely right. We developed metrics and statistical-based uh, approaches to try and clean up the data. And do you think that you got it, basically, that you, you got a clean set or there's still like one in a, a million, there's an A instead of a C. Yeah, that's a really, really important question and I think useful for people to get their heads around is that how do you create a resource that was going to be used by hundreds of different people with many, many different types of questions that they want to ask of this data and how do you make that clean for everybody? We thought about the major ways that people were likely to use this data set. One example is, is learning about the associations between genotypes and common disease. And think about the kinds of things that would be useful for those researchers as well as others. And we also took the approach that sometimes people might be really interested in the unusual aspects of this kind of data. And we didn't want to remove everything that we thought had some minute possibility of being incorrect so that people could make their own decisions. Right, because every person is going to have some rare thing. You mean the people in the UK Biobank or the researchers? The UK Biobank. <laughs> exactly. In a data set of this size, we expect to see quite a lot of, of unusual things in particular with the human genome. Sometimes you can compare sex determined from looking at the genetic data to the sex reported by the individual, and sometimes that is not the same. And historically, people have often used this in, in smaller samples as a way of 
identifying potential mishandling in the laboratory. But it turns out that in the UK Biobank, it's large enough to be able to see really interesting instances where some individuals have, say, two X chromosomes and one Y chromosome. And it turns out standard ways of looking at this data and inferring sex from this are just not appropriate. Now that they're doing whole genome sequencing, Mm. are they going to have to do this whole thing all over again? In some senses, yes. But I think what's really helpful with the experiments we've already done is that we've now learnt a lot about the properties of the data and aspects of the genetics of the individuals in the UK Biobank. So, for example, one of the things that we had to find out when we were uh, looking at the genotype data is is who in this data set are related to each other. So who in the UK Biobank has a, has a mother or a child or, or a cousin or a sibling? And so I suspect that they will use that kind of information to help them figure out the needle in the haystack problem of where, where their errors in the data. Roughly how many people do you think in the course of analysing the data, based on your experience, are going to be bashing their heads into walls? I think there will be moments of frustration, there always is in, in, in science, but I think it will be overall hugely exciting for the people who are involved. Decode and the Sanger are the ones who'll be doing this stuff. And when they're done, all the data goes on to the major players, the four pharmaceutical companies. Each of them are paying for this, and it does not come cheap. Of the order of £200 million, and that's being brought together by those four pharmaceuticals at the cost of £25 million each, plus additional funding of £50 million being provided by UK government and a further £50 million being provided by the Wellcome Trust charity. What's going on there? Why exactly are these companies shelling out? That, plus gins and jeans, is after the break. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef. Take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. Welcome back. I'm Phil Sansom and this is Naked Genetics. The UK Biobank is a massive database that's got half a million people's family histories and diets and medical data, you name it. And now they're sequencing the whole genome, every single bit of DNA, for every single person there. It's a big job, with a big price tag, and half of that investment is coming from big pharmaceutical companies, £25 million from each. Why? Well, here's the Biobank's Mark Effingham. This wealth of genetic data will enable those pharma companies to develop new treatments and they will get a short period of exclusive access of nine months before those data become available to all UK biobank researchers. Nine months exclusive access to look for new treatments. I got in touch with AstraZeneca's Catherine Priestley and she told me that they'll be looking at complex diseases such as IPF, that's a type of lung disease, and CKD, chronic kidney disease. She said, defining the right target is key to any drug discovery. To be able to do this well, you need to do this at scale to uncover rare variants. 
Okay, I wanted an example of how this kind of scale can help you uncover the genes behind a complex disease. And I found one in breast cancer. It's the UK's most common type of cancer. One in eight women gets it at some point. Serena Nick Zainal from the University of Cambridge has been researching it for years. And in a new study, she looked at whole genomes and found something surprising. We've studied a cancer type that's quite aggressive called triple negative breast cancers. And we have used the genomics to see whether we can identify patients who are going to respond to treatments versus patients who don't respond to treatments. We take a DNA sample from the tumour itself and we also take a sample of DNA from the blood of the patient. And a tumour usually has a highly mutated genome and so you can do the comparison and find all the mutations that have arisen that have contributed towards cancer development. That's what makes it a tumour, basically. That's exactly what makes it a tumour, that's right. Who are you looking at in this study? In the south of Sweden, they've been recruiting patients with breast cancer since 2010. Every woman with a breast cancer has been included in this study. The recruitment rate is in the order of 85%. Over 11,500 patients recruited already. Does it matter that they're all Swedish? It certainly has got its own, I suppose, biases because it's a Swedish population. Having said that, there was no bias in who was included, so anybody in the whole of the south of Sweden was included. What did you find? Patterns of mutations. Specifically, we had used an algorithm that we developed, a computational algorithm called HR Detect. HR Detect was trained using machine learning methods to identify tumours that had BRCA1 or BRCA2 genetic defects. These two genes are really important in fixing damage that happens to your DNA. So our DNA is always coming under attack from the environment, from within our cells. BRCA1 and BRCA2 are proteins that are involved in DNA repair. So when you have a mutation in BRCA1 and BRCA2, you know, you can't fix damage and you get a lot of mutations in your genome. HR Detect is trained to identify those patterns and tell you what the likelihood is of any tumour having a BRCA1 or BRCA2 type of defect. Here's the stupid question. Why can't you just look at BRCA1 or BRCA2? Because those are genes that you know where they are, right? Yes. So if you could just be sure that by sequencing just a gene alone, you would find the tumours, then yes, that would be the cheapest way. But what we found is that actually about a third of the tumours we cannot find the genetic cause or an alternative cause. We can't find it in about a third of the tumours. So we can see the patterns, and the patterns look identical to BRCA1 and BRCA2 tumours, but we can't find the genetic defect. That's so weird that it's a BRCA1 tumour, but it doesn't have the BRCA1 thing. That's right, and we don't fully understand why that is, but we don't fully understand the whole genome either, and I suspect there are ways of turning off the gene that we don't fully understand yet. Now, what does that mean if you find these tumours that uh, people didn't realise had these patterns, but actually they do? What does that mean for people? For those women who have tumours that look like the BRCA1 and BRCA2 tumours, currently they're not getting the same treatments. How many of them are there again? More than 59% had a high score. And these tumours are believed to be sensitive to specific drugs, in particular drugs that were developed for BRCA1 and BRCA2 tumours called PARP inhibitors. Currently, actually, most women still don't get PARP inhibitors in this country. <laughs> but even if they did, it would have only been 1 to 5%, not 50-something percent. 
that increase is massive. So this drug was initially created for 1% to 5% of the population, not huge numbers, not 20-something percent, 50-something percent. So there's a lot of women who potentially could be getting drugs that they're not getting. And because it's got that pattern, it might work on them. That's right. But we don't know whether that's definitely going to be the case. So we now need to do the clinical trials. Why do you need whole genome sequencing for that? The other ways of examining the genome are called exome sequencing or targeted sequencing. And exome sequencing captures about 1% to 2% of the genome. And targeted sequencing captures even less, 0.1% or less. If you don't look at 98% of the genome, you're going to miss a lot of information. So I kind of think of it as going on a voyage and using very limited landmarks to try to get where you want to go. But today with whole genome sequencing, you can have a complete world map. Is it like going from here, there, V-dragons to GPS? Yeah, pretty much it is, yeah. So that's the last step in this biobank project pipeline. The pharma companies can use this like a DNA GPS, and then nine months later, the rest of the scientific world can too. Right, time for a break, and a look at the bigger picture. It's time for Gins and Genes. I'm Hannah Thompson. I'm the Chief Product and People Officer at a startup called Cambridge Cancer Genomics. I'm Eva Higginbotham, and I'm a PhD student at the Department of Zoology. Thanks both for joining me. We're going to be drinking some gin, as usual, provided by the Cambridge Distillery, courtesy of our friend Mr. Will Lowe. Will, what are we drinking today? So today I've brought you the latest in our hyper-local gins. This is called the Curator's Gin. All of the flavours you see in this glass came out of the Cambridge University Botanic Garden, less than two miles from here. So this month we're talking about this big project to sequence all the whole genomes in the UK biobank. Is this uh, everything it's cracked up to be? Is it a real big sort of milestone in the way we understand genetics? I think it will be when it's done, for the UK at least. Is that important, by the way, for the UK? (laughs) I think it is important. I mean, really, we can sequence all of the genomes in the UK, but actually the biobank is 94.6% white, which at the time that they collected participants was actually representative of the population, but we're not talking about, you know, all humans when we're talking about this. We're actually talking about a very, it's quite a small subset of types of people. I mean, not only are the, is the biobank segregated by age, so they recruited people between age 40 and 69, but also because of, it's called the healthy volunteer effect. So the kind of person who's likely to respond to a letter in the post that says, do you want to be a part of our project, etc., tends to be someone who's already quite healthy and actually the statistics show that they have a higher percentage of women less likely to smoke they're less likely to be obese than the general population they're more likely to be healthy in lots of ways but you know you have to start somewhere you make really really good points and I think it's great to know what's going on at a genetic level but actually some of those things don't present themselves if they're not put in certain environments if you really really want to untangle everything you have to monitor people right from birth up till they die The other thing is that it's, you know, I was talking to my friend who's a doctor and she was saying, what are we going to do as a scientist? I'm kind of like, more information is interesting. And from a doctor's standpoint, they're like, great, so it's this gene and how can I help this family? Yeah, I think that will be the next bottleneck. Does that seem like something to do with the reason that these pharmaceutical companies are getting nine months early access? 
overall, it, they've put money in, you know, it's 100 million pounds between four companies. They're putting money in, so they're getting something out. And in a way, that is a sign of, you know, things ticking along and working as they should. One of the questions about pharmaceutical companies having early access to the data comes under the question of patents and patenting genes. So I didn't realize until recently that up until 2013 in the US, it was 100% legal to patent genes. And actually, to patent genes? Yeah. Madness! <laughs> yeah, and there, there were 4,300 human genes were patented up until 2013. And not just, this isn't just a question of like, oh, we took a bit of DNA and we messed around with it and now we patent it. This is like a gene that I could have in my body that my body made and used. Where that has really serious consequences is when you think about testing for specific genetic disorders. So the famous one is the BRCA, the breast cancer genes. Those were under patent until 2013. So if you wanted to get tested to see if you had a much higher risk of breast cancer, you had to pay that pharmaceutical company to do the testing because they had patented those genes. But you have the gene. Yeah, you have the gene. I mean, that's, it brings up all these interesting questions about, like, who owns nature? I'm not sure about the laws in the UK, and they did change them in the US in 2013. But, yeah, the, one of the things that they report from the Biobank for this project is that the pharmaceutical companies will have to report on any patents that they're going to file from information they gather from this mission. I would say also that nine months isn't that much of a head start in the grand scheme of science. They are actually the ones with the most resources able to action any data points that come out of it. I talk to oncologists almost weekly and they say we're getting more genomic information and I don't know, I'm not a genomic expert so I don't know how to handle it. Is that the real challenge then, analysing this stuff? Yeah, I think there's huge amounts of data to understand and if we get the links between them wrong, that has huge implications as well. What do you guys think about this idea that you know data seems to be the big hot new commodity nowadays? Data is definitely the new gold, or petrol maybe, gas, who knows. Um, luckily, there are quite strict laws on data privacy, but it's very hard to police exactly what's going on, so you can't be looking at what everyone's doing all the time. It's interesting to me because I'm not a big data scientist. I take lots of images of flybrains using a microscope, and over the course of the last four years, I've taken an unbelievable number of images. But the fact is that only a small portion of that is actually useful. We've reached a point kind of in biology where it's relatively easy to make a huge amount of data. Getting what's good out of it is going to take much longer than actually producing it in the first place. Two years down the line, when it's actually done, maybe a couple of years after that, when a bunch of people have done studies on it, do you think someone's life might be measurably like different? Uh, I think the problem that I have with this is lots of science news is very exciting and very explosive and like, woo, this is going to happen. But actually, it doesn't happen for years and years and years. And we all know the pain of how long science actually takes. So I think there's just a management issue. So managing expectations and the like. So manage my expectations. You might die from a genetic disease. I'm not know why still. <laughs> We're not going to see the true impact of the data and for about maybe 50 years if I want to be very cautionary. 50 years? Yeah, I think to be able to research something, find a drug target, put it through clinical trials, make sure it works in that subset of patients that you're interested in, that's a lot of time. And it also costs a lot of money. I mean, one of the things that's good about this kind of project is that hopefully it will make making new drugs cheaper because part of the cost of getting a new drug to market mm -hmm. is the number of 
drugs that turn out to be useless. You know, you can put years and years and years and a horrible amount of money into developing a drug and then you find out, oop, it doesn't actually do what we want it to do. Never mind. And so that, that means that the cost of developing the drug that does actually work goes way, way up. So one of the hopes actually with this kind of project is that because we'll understand more details about sort of complex regulatory links between genes, we might be able to rule out drugs earlier in the process. So in that sense, it's going to take a long time to see the full effects of, of this work, absolutely. But hopefully it will also speed up some of those processes overall. It just takes so long, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are new really exciting things coming out, but it just, yeah, when you look back, it takes a lot of time to get places. Right, that's enough about the genetics. I think we've earned some gin. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. What I needed on a Monday. <laughs> That's it for Naked Genetics. Lots of people to thank this time. Karen Birmingham and Vince Smith from Illumina, Claire Bycroft, Andrew Traherne and Mark Effingham from the UK Biobank, Serena Nixainal, Claire Nicholson and Carolina Hayfliger from AstraZeneca, and Patrick Short. Our panel for Gins and Genes was Eva Higginbotham and Hannah Thompson. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Or just tweet it if you want. We're at Naked Genetics. And if you want to get in touch with me, send me an email, phil at nakedscientists.com, not nakedgenetics.com. I can see how you might get confused. That's it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>